All right, let's go Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on our screens behind me in just a moment. Uh, We also uh, highly encourage around here the use of a a Bible app called uh, the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, We use it for all kinds of things, and so that's a good option as well. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, like a physical Bible, uh, we would actually love to to fix that. We love to give away Bibles around here. We think that God uses that in a big way. Uh, God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We, we really, truly, deeply want you to know God. And, and so if uh, a physical Bible in, in your hands is going to help accomplish that, then, then that's a win for us. Um, and so uh, not only will the text be on the screens, and not only can you get on your phones, not only will we give Bible away, uh, but if you are watching us online at home, we'll put the text up on your screen when we get to that moment. All right, so welcome, guys, to the very last week of the Habakkuk series. Yeah, all right. And so we made it to the end. Um, we started looking at this tiny little letter of Habakkuk all the way back in June, and, and we've kind of slowly but surely made our way here. Uh, Habakkuk, for uh, those of you who are uninitiated, maybe you've never done the church thing before, uh, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. Uh, he is speaking to the nation of Judah during an incredibly unique time in their history. Uh, Judah is always rampant with sin, rampant with idolatry, uh, but uh, <laughs> Habakkuk is kind of living and breathing and working in one of the lowest spots, all right? Uh, so we think that he had this special window between the last great revival in the nation of Judah under the reign of King Josiah, and he saw the highest of heights. He saw the highest of spiritual uh, whatever. He saw his nation returning to God and returning to righteousness, returning to holiness, doing the things that God had always called his people to do and to be, and then it all falls apart in a, in a moment, Right? King Josiah dies, his sons and his grandsons don't value what he values, don't love what he values, they don't pursue the Lord. And so the kingdom, Judah, is run systematically into the ground and they end up worse off than when they started. They were far more sinful, far more idolatrous than even before Josiah's time. Habakkuk saw the highest of highs and then he watched it all shatter into a million pieces. And the question that we've been asking all series long is that if you're in Habakkuk's shoes, what does your prayer life look like? How do you respond to God in that season? What are you asking him for? What are you accusing him of? What are you, what are you begging to see happen again? And, and so the book of Habakkuk is that response. It's this back and forth dialogue between Habakkuk and his God. It's a back-and-forth dialogue between Habakkuk and the king of the cosmos. And and we don't have time to get into all that back-and-forth this morning. You can go back to the podcast or the YouTube stuff and and, and dig more deeply into that back-and-forth dance that we've got and the finer details of that. But, But the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing specifically on the very last volley of this back and forth. In chapter two, God makes a grand declaration of both his sovereign, that that he is both sovereign and just. God declares that he is high and lofty, that he is seated upon the throne, right? And that the whole creation, all the earth, keeps silence before him. Babylon will get what it deserves. Right after Judah gets what it deserves, write it down, make it plain, 
It's happening, and you can trust that it's happening because I am who I am. That's the tone of the declaration. Don't argue with this. The earth keeps silence before me. So a couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, now that God has declared this about himself, now that he's made this grand revelation of who he is, how should Habakkuk respond to that? Like, like if you're in that back and forth dialogue, if you're the one calling out to God and maybe even accusing God of wrongdoing in this little back and forth, if you're that guy and God comes back with, I'm here, here I am, be silent. What's your next move? <laughs> you be silent. <laughs> A good way of being silent is to turn that silence into action. He worships. And specifically, he, he writes a song. He sings. A congregational song. He calls the faithful remaining in Judah to sing along with him. But that worship isn't just random. It carries a, a certain shape. There's a, there's a method to the madness here. And Habakkuk begins his song of praise with a healthy, I would call it, fear of the Lord. But, but we can be honest, that's, that's not likely the first thing that you think of when you think of praising God, right? It's not our knee-jerk reaction to go, okay, fear. It's not what naturally comes out of us when we think of worship songs and casting praise before the Lord. And you may even be wondering if fear ever belongs in worship at all. I know some people who would argue that. Does it? I, th I think it does if you know who it is you're singing to. If you truly grasp, if you actually comprehend who it is that you're singing to, fear ought to be buried in there somewhere. When you rightly understand who God is, when you rightly relate to him, understand how you relate to him, it ought to floor you every time. It ought to floor you. Or at least, that's exactly what happens whenever biblical characters encounter the holiness of God. Over and over again. I, I don't know, though. Maybe you stand a little taller than those guys, right? To catch a glimpse of God's white-hot holiness is to be changed by him. Over and over and over again in the Bible. Moses' fates lights up like a bleached-out Christmas tree, right? Isaiah cries out, oh no, I'm a dead man. The Apostle Paul goes blind for a weekend. But I'm sure God thinks way more highly of you than he does those losers, right? When you rightly understand who God is, and when you rightly understand how you relate to him, it ought to floor you. But that healthy fear of the Lord, man, it, it also does some work. It doesn't exist in isolation. So, so last week we talked about how it doesn't take long before that fear turns into a deep and abiding rest. A deep and abiding rest. Why? Because God is holy and because he is unchanging and because he is never or will never be outclassed or outsmarted. He will never be overwhelmed. He is constant. He is sovereign. He is good. And you can rest in that. It doesn't matter what might be coming down the pipe. His people can still rest in him because he ain't changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful both in the middle of calamity and he will be just as faithful on the other side of that calamity. Okay, but how do I know that he's faithful? 
How do I move from theological truths and concepts that I'm told I should believe into actually believing it? How do I move from point A to point B on there? Well, you start recounting what he's already done. You tell the stories of, of what he has done and who he is and how he has worked over and over and over again to yourself. And when you do that, you're going to start to notice a pattern. He always works this way. And if, if you're really, really smart, you'll, you'll make that, that reminding of yourself a recurring theme in your heart and life. And it's, it's a, just a really good way to cut despair off at the pass. You beat it before it gets there. But not only is that true for the dumb little stuff that typically leads to our despair, According to Habakkuk here, it's also true for when God just told you that he's raising up a warring empire to wipe you out. Last week, we closed out our time by looking at verse 16. I want to go ahead and look at it again this morning. Verse 16 of Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So it's, it's pretty clear here that Habakkuk is not excited about what's coming, right? Like no one would argue that. At least I don't, I don't think so if they're reading the text in front of him. He, he, he looks upon the days ahead of him as incredibly dark days. Babylon is going to come and destruction comes with them. Slavery comes with them. Death comes with them. And, and Habakkuk says that his body trembles at the sound of it, at the thought of it. He trembles. You, you ever been so distraught that the mere thought of something caused your body to shake. I, I would imagine that most people have never experienced that before. I, I would say that healthy people in healthy relationships and healthy circumstances probably have never experienced that more than once or twice in their life. It's a rare occurrence to be so distraught, to be so despaired that your body can't help but involuntary shake at the thought of it. So, so why are we looking at this verse again? I mean, didn't we talk about this last week? We're, we're looking at this verse again to remind ourselves of what it is that Habakkuk is feeling right now. What he's experiencing, what he's navigating, what he's feeling right now as he arrives at this grand crescendo that's coming up. And, and the reason why I want to point that out is this. If we're not careful... We can take what he's about to say and steer it in the wrong direction. And I say that because I've seen it happen dozens of times in church settings. We can steer it into a whitewashed, sterilized version that I've, that I've personally witnessed proof-texted in other circles. Let me make it explicitly clear. Habakkuk is not ignoring his problems. He sees them, and it terrifies him. He's not looking at anything with rose-colored glasses here. He knows exactly what pain and what heartache lies out on the horizon. He sees it coming from a long way off. Every cell in his body feels the tragic weight of what's coming down the pipe, and he's responding to it viscerally. But at the very same time, he knows God. And he trusts God. And so Habakkuk lets go. The Hebrew there for 
for the words quietly wait, it carries the idea of a deep sigh. An exhale. Habakkuk stops fighting and he settles in. Not, not because he, he, he's tired of fighting, not because he ran out of juice and just needed to, to give up for a breather for a while. It's because he knows and trusts God. He knows who God is and he knows who God declares himself to be. He remembers and he rests. But the question for our time this morning is what comes after that rest? Sure, fear is important and Rest follows after it, and absolutely, we should do both of those things. But what's next? What emerges after a rest? If, if a healthy fear of the Lord produces, leads to a deep and abiding rest, does that rest produce anything? I think the answer is yes. In verse 17, Habakkuk continues his song. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Okay, let's call a time out there. Can, can we be honest? That's a really bad day. Right? No, I'm looking forward to that day. That's a, that's a bad day. Habakkuk's going to need a hug after this. So, so the very first word of verse 17 tells us that there's a turn coming, right? Though. Though this. Though that. Habakkuk is going to flip all of this on its head in a moment. But before he gets there, man, he's going to drive that screw all the way home. He's going he's to cast out all doubts as to what's coming down the pipe. And so he does so in, in, in what I think is a really poetic way with, with three couplets of heartache. It's one of those the hits just keep on coming kind of moments. He starts by saying, though the fig tree should not blossom. Those of you with more of a green thumb, I'm not that guy. I hear stories about what you do. I have to have you tell me what flowers are. All right? uh, but, but for those of you who are more of the, the green thumb type, you probably already know that for the fig tree, the blossom is the precursor to the fig. All right? You see blossoms, next you should expect figs. That's how it works. And, and in fact, um, there's this really important story uh, in the New Testament of Jesus coming across a fig tree outside of the temple that had blossoms on it, but not any figs. And so do you remember what he does? He curses the fig tree. Now, why would Jesus do something mean to the fig tree? It's because the fig tree wasn't doing what the fig tree was supposed to do, right? That's the whole point of the story. It, it has the appearance of health. It has the appearance of, of fruitfulness, but it's not doing what a fig tree ought to do. And, and so the point in that moment is to say, hey, the temple's impressive. The temple looks awesome and mighty and powerful, but the temple's not doing what the temple was designed to do. All right? That's the, the point of the story. There, there's blossoms, but there's no fruit there. It's worthless. Here, though, in Habakkuk, the fig tree doesn't even get that far. There aren't blossoms. Forget about fruit, the flowers aren't even there. Oh, but you know, it's just a bag of fig season. We can, we can, do, we can go with one season with less figs than, than we're used to. I, I mean, it'll be hard, sure, I really like those figs and all, but we can survive this season without the joy of the figs. We'll be okay, we'll be okay. But then Habakkuk steps it up. He says, nor fruit beyond the vines. I told you back in week four of this series that to the Hebrew mind, wine was intrinsically linked to the party, right? The idea of celebration, the, the planting of the vineyard was, this, was seen as the presence of stability and of, and of safety. Drinking wine from your vineyard was, was seen as, as the proper reward, the fruit of your labor, right? 
It's all about celebration and merry times. And Habakkuk calls to the congregation here and says, hey, hey, we're not going to have a grape harvest this year, guys. The things we usually celebrate and the method we use to celebrate them, they're all going to be taken away from us this year. Starting to sound a little too close to home, doesn't it? But hey, we, we've been through difficult times before. <laughs> this is nothing. Sure, I mean, we'll, we'll run low on the sweets and we'll run low on the wine this year, but it's just a season. That, that's nothing we can't get over. We've, we've done this before. Just you wait till next year. We'll double up on that party. Woo, it's going to be great. And then Habakkuk says, though, the produce of the olive fails. Now, you and I might think that olive oil is tasty stuff, but remember that we're talking about a culture that leans pretty heavily on it. It's essential in their cooking. It's essential in their hygiene. It's essential in their worship. Olive oil is everywhere in that culture. A bad year down at the olive grove is going to have lasting effects on the economy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cause some problems for more than just a season. So we've moved past simply losing the finer things and the simple joys. We've We've moved past that into this actually being a little painful. And then Habakkuk says, but the fields yield no food. Hey, on the bright side, you won't notice the olive oil shortage if you don't have any flour to mix it with. <laughs> Figured out our problem, guys. We'll just, we just won't have any food. You don't have to worry about not having enough oil to mix with your flour if you don't have any flour either. But Habakkuk just won't stop talking. And so next he says, and the flock be cut off from the fold. The sheep too? Yeah, the sheep too. They're gone. The milk factory, the wool factory, a, mag a major meat source for them, all gone. Scattered and left vulnerable. Could it possibly get any worse? Oh yeah, it could get a lot worse. Habakkuk adds one more thing. He says, and there be no herd in the stalls. Owning cattle in that culture in that time was seen as a personal fortune. It's not very much different than our day today, right? Uh, cattle's a good investment if you know what to do with it, so, but it's a long-term investment. It's not an overnight moneymaker. You don't develop a herd of cows over a weekend. It takes a number of years to develop a herd. And so, in other words, all the savings are gone. You zeroed out the bank account for this. The rebuild that's coming after this tragedy, it's going to take a while, years even, maybe even generations before things are whole again. This is not one bad season that will be forgotten by this time next year. No, this is a generational tragedy. Is there any doubt at all now why Habakkuk would call, see this coming and say, I feel like a rottenness is entering my bones. This isn't a momentary hiccup on an otherwise healthy path. This is a complete undoing of all they hang on to. It is a ripping away from everything that they would claim gives them joy and strength and security. It is truly a dark day. But Habakkuk says, though, though the fig tree, though the fruit, though the oil, 
there is a turn coming, and that turn is found in verse 18. What's the first word of verse 18? Yet. Oh, guys, that's a beautiful word. I tell you all the time in here that that one of my favorite words in the Bible is the the little three-letter word, but. But God this, but God that. Go ahead and add yet to that list. It's a good word. Yet I will rejoice in who? The Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So the right response to the revelation of God is worship. That worship first looks like a healthy fear of the Lord. That healthy fear of the Lord, though, quickly turns into a deep and abiding rest. But, oh, church family, that rest eventually, slowly but surely, eventually it morphs into a fountain for joy. It evolves into a happy rejoicing. Oh, wait a second. Ah, that can't be true. That can't be right. Habakkuk must be off his rocker here. Did you hear what he just said? Do you hear that laundry list of chaos he just spelled out? He just spelled out coming disaster. He just poetically described Judah's impending ruin. What do you mean rejoicing? What do you mean happiness? I mean, to rejoice in this moment must mean that he's crazy. He doesn't, he doesn't see anything. His eyes must be closed to the, the problems around him. In fact, doesn't even describing or, or calling people to happiness in this, in this moment, doesn't it seem a little tone deaf to you? Read the room, Habakkuk. Come on. People are suffering over this. Don't you know what's going on? Don't you know what this is going to cost people? And based on, what, on how the rest of the world would tend to define joy and Based on what the rest of the world, what most people would assume to be the sources of happiness, rejoicing in this moment, it does sound crazy. It sounds absolutely ludicrous. What are you talking about, Habakkuk? Don't you see all that we've lost? Not only the finer things, not only the celebration things, but also the necessary things. Don't you know how much we have lost, Habakkuk? Habakkuk does sound crazy here. And so either Habakkuk needs to be committed or maybe, just maybe, Habakkuk knows something that the rest of us don't know. He sees and understands something that the normal person doesn't see and understands. How in the world can Habakkuk rejoice? How dare he? How can he rejoice even as the world falls apart around him? Guys, the answer is it's, it's because the one who produces that joy remains untouched. Despite whatever else might be ripped away, taken fairly or unfairly, the source of his actual joy is unfazed. Though the fig tree, though the vines, though the fields, yet... Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Notice there that the Lord, that Lord is in all caps here, right? We're talking about the Tetragrammaton again. The name he's made himself known by. All the other things can go away, but if I still have him, not, not some distant, vague idea of God floating out in the ether, but the real, knowable, personable him. If I still have him, I'm not just okay, I'm actually thriving, thriving. Whether good things or necessary things, it doesn't matter if they're there or not. If he is with me, I'm good. In fact, I'm golden. 
Oh, but wait a minute, isn't God the one who's going to take away those things? Yeah. Yeah, he is, and he gets to. They all came from his hand in the first place. He can take them back if he wants. And truth be told, if you love those things more than him, that's going to be a really hard day for you. It's going to be all kinds of terrible. But the Lord is seated upon his throne. He is both transcendent, infinitely transcendent, and intimately known. Habakkuk doesn't have to lean on figs, and he doesn't have to lean on grapes, and he doesn't even have to lean on grain and herd, because the perfectly holy and good God says, here I am. Know me. And when you truly know me, you can't help but be changed by me. Here I am. Walk with I mean, guys, Habakkuk, he isn't crazy. His eyes are open. His eyes are open to who God is and what God has continuously done. But listen, they're also open to what God promises to do. And so he turns up the volume in the second part of verse 18. He says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk deeply understands that whatever comes from the Lord's hand is for his good. Whatever we might describe that thing as, or whether we see it initially as good, bad, or somewhere in between, whatever comes from the Lord's hand is for his good. And so when he sees the other side of this dark day, it won't be because he was more clever than everybody else. It won't be because Habakkuk was more prepared than everybody else. It won't be because he was stronger or smarter or anything other. It won't be, it won't be because he did anything better than anybody else around him. It will be because, only because, the Lord carried him through. God and God alone will be worthy of the praise and worthy of the celebration on the other side of this dark day. And Habakkuk doubles down on this idea in the last verse, verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Who is Habakkuk's strength? It's not Habakkuk. It's not anything Habakkuk can even put his hands on. God's his strength. God's the one who gets glory for the success here. And then one of the coolest things in this letter, the entire letter, happens right after that. Uh, Habakkuk says that God makes his feet like the deer to walk on high places. And those of you who know your Bible well, you probably immediately started thinking of Psalm 18, right? Verse 33. I don't think it's a stretch to assume that that's probably a favorite psalm for half the people in this room. Makes my feet like the deer tread on high places. If you grew up reading, reading the King James, both of those texts will say that God gives you hinds feet. If you know what, don't know what hinds feet are, they're the back feet on a lot of mountain-dwelling animals, sheep, deer. Um, their feet are incredibly stable. They're incredibly secure. They're, they, it's what makes them able to climb up uh, things that you and I can't climb up. You ever seen a picture of mountain goats scaling up the side of a, like a face of a cliff? Right? It's their hinds feet that make that possible. There's these incredibly stable, sure feet that only mountain-dwelling animals seem to have. And so why do I, I think this part is so cool? Because Habakkuk allures 
to the line in Psalm 18, but he doesn't quote it precisely. They're not the same thing. In, in English, it reads the same, but in the Hebrew, he, he specifically uses a different vocabulary word. In Psalm 18, when the psalmist says, he makes, the Hebrew there, it carries the idea of copying, of bringing something up to an equal level. In other words, he gives me feet like the deer have feet so I can, put, so I can do what the deer does. Right? So he is, he's giving me what I need in order to go do the things that the deer do. He gives me feet just like the deer, so now I can do whatever the deer can do. But for Habakkuk, he doesn't use that Hebrew word. He uses a different Hebrew word for makes. The Hebrew word he chooses to use carries the idea of arranging, of placement. Instead of Habakkuk saying that God gave him deer feet, he's saying that God takes his insufficient feet and places them exactly where the deer would step. He says that God makes him tread on his high places, same Hebrew word. God places them. God arranges them for his good. And man, I think, I think a lot of people assume that high places here is a good thing, but to be honest, I'm willing to bet that those people have never climbed a mountain. At least not one that was grossly above their skill level. When I was a teenager, I did the Boy Scout thing and went backpacking and a couple of times in northern New Mexico at a scout range called Philmont, and uh, we did these long, multi-week, you know, 75 to 100-mile treks through the mountains. And, and, and on my very first trip, I remember uh, that my team, we got off the trail that we were supposed to be on, all right? Uh, but we knew where we were supposed to go, and we had maps and compasses, and we were like, we know how to get from point A to point B. Here's a trail right here. And so we started following that trail to get back to where we were supposed to be. Some of you already connected the dots. It's a terrible idea. It was a dangerous idea, actually. We spent most of the afternoon very worried that somebody was about to take a wrong step and die. We should not have gone up the side of the mountain that we went up. We shouldn't. Like, teenagers almost lost their lives because we did something really stupid. The high places are always pretty. Quite beautiful. But they're also terrifying if you're in over your head. If you don't have the skill to navigate, if you don't have the capability to traverse what's in front of you, you're in a lot of trouble. The high places are gorgeous, but if you don't have the right skill level, you might die. Regardless of the danger, Habakkuk knows where his salvation lies. He knows who gives him strength. He knows who places his feet. So despite the terror surrounding him, he can rejoice. He has seen God and so he fears. He has seen God and so he trusts, he rests. He has seen God so he rejoices. What do you rejoice in? Is it God himself or is it some lesser thing that could be lost? Fig trees, the wine, fields yield no food. Is it the, the savings you got built up? What do you rejoice in? 
Is it God himself or is it some lesser thing that can be ripped away in a moment? Something that will inevitably fail you when the day of trouble comes. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, listen, you can be. You can place your hope and your joy this morning in the God who is untouchable when everything else fails. The Bible teaches that, that we are all, by default, separated from this God because of our sin. There's nothing that you or me can do to, to bridge that divide on our own. We are wholly incapable. It is owed, our sin is owed his righteous wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and loves you with a great love. That the eternal Son, Jesus, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfectly innocent substitute to pay the debt for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And he now calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. Even this morning, you can do that today. You can call on him to save you. Or maybe if you want to be more poetic about it, you can ask him to place your feet like the deer. Guide me as you respond to him in repentance and faith. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for response. It's a a time specifically built out for you to put action to what he's stirring in your heart. For for those in the room, I'll I'll be down front here. For those of you who are online, maybe I'd still love to talk to you. I can't talk to you right now, but man, that doesn't mean we can't talk soon. Put in the comments section or use the, the contact form that we've got placed there. I'd love to be helpful to you as you walk through, navigate through this response of repentance and faith. Let's talk about it. But what about for those of you who are already followers of Jesus? How do we respond? The answer, just like every week, is we repent of sin and we lean into his goodness. And a really good way to do that today, a good way to fear and then remember and then celebrate this morning, is to use the picture that Jesus gave us for exactly that purpose. The Lord's Supper. Those of you who are Christians in the room, go ahead and grab uh, your elements. If you're not a Christian yet, uh, we politely ask you to abstain. Uh, whether you grab some or not, it, it, there's nothing magical uh, going on here. It's a, it's a wafer and some juice in a plastic cup. All right? there's, there's nothing magical about it for us. Uh, but for the Christian, uh, there's something going on here that you're just not a part of yet. It's a family meal. And some of you might honestly be asking, can you do all those things? Fear, remember, rejoice in the singular act of the Lord's Supper? Oh yeah, yeah, you can. The Bible is pretty clear that this moment should not be approached flippantly. In fact, there are warnings against it. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells the church there that some people are sick and some people have even died because uh, they had not approached this moment with proper reverence. They rushed into this moment without deeply considering their sin. Sometimes in the Bible, When you don't voluntarily hit the deck, God hits the deck for you. But reverence in this moment, man, it has has way less to do with some kind of outward action and way more to do with an internal posture. Fig blossoms, but no figs, right? No, the, the reverence called for in this moment is a posture that seriously, deeply considers his holiness, seriously considers your sin, seriously considers your desperate need for him to save you. But that healthy fear of the Lord, man, it's, it's not long before it's replaced by remembering and resting. 
Jesus came and Jesus died. His body was broken and his blood was spilled to make payment for that sin in you. We are a fickle people. We forget so easily. And so our good king has given us an incredibly simple picture through bread and juice to be an intentional reminder of what it is he has done. And when fear and rest are in their proper places, it won't be long before rejoicing comes easy. So I'm going to pray. JB is going to lead us in singing. And as you are ready, as you are ready, take your elements. Fear the holiness of the Lord. Understand the heinousness of your sin. Remember and rest in his finished work for you alone. And then come out of the gates celebrating in song. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of Habakkuk. While we may not be staring down the barrel of an invading army, over and over again throughout Habakkuk's experience, we have these, oh yeah, us too moments. Would you help us call out to you in our pain? Would you help us trust you when there's not a lot else to trust? Would you help us rest in who you are and what you have done and what you are doing? Would you help us celebrate both in the middle of calamity and on the other side of it? Father, for those who don't know you yet, would you draw them into the kingdom right now? Would you make yourself known? Open eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to know. Call them to yourself. For those of us in here who are getting ready to respond with this picture, call us to repentance. But help us rest in what you've done. And help us celebrate well. In Jesus' name, amen.